Hey, everybody, welcome to This Life Podcast with me, Dr. Drew. Hey everybody, welcome to a very special end of the year podcast and uh, simulcast and stream. Uh, this this life, hashtag you live, courtesy of Social CBD. I'll tell you more about that after the break. Happy holidays to everyone. This is the very special holiday season where depression is uh, what everyone's always asking me about. So we're going to talk about the many faces of depression and some of the more novel ideas for treatment. Uh you can call me for questions, 9842-DR-DREW. That's 9842-37-3739. And we got lots of uh, great calls coming in already and two terrific guests. Also, I want to say that we will have an Ask Dr. Drew podcast, very similar to this, right after this live show at about mm, an hour and a half from now. We're taking caller questions other than depression at that point as well. That'll be at 4.30 Pacific Standard Time. Uh, give us a call back again, 9842-DR-DREW. And we have been working very hard in expanding this technology that you're able to watch and I'm able to talk to you from, which is extraordinary. Uh, it makes it easy to notify you when the show starts. So go to drdrew.tv, find the email list and text sign up, and uh, as well as the live video. We are on facebook.com slash drdrew, youtube.com slash drdrew. Also for the Twitter fans, live on periscope.com. Uh, follow us to get it live. If you go to sign up at drdrew.tv, we'll send you a blast when we go live with these things. And again, the number, same number there, 984-237-3739. On another note, uh, those of you that know me from my daytime KBC radio program, that show will end in the new year, and it has been a great experience. I've been there for almost, I think, seven years now. Uh, no regrets. I will miss Leanne Tweeden and Mike Catherwood and Lawrence Vaughn, all of whom are my co-host during the run of that show, and they were, did a great job, but I know you will see them again in shows like this, no doubt. You saw Catherwood just recently as well. And uh, don't be discouraged. Uh, you can get uh, listen to the podcast from Midday Live at drdrew.com. And also a reminder, I will continue to be doing Dr. Drew After Dark, courtesy of your mom's house, which is doing well, as well as the Adam and Dr. Drew show. So I continue to... What word shall I use? Uh participate with adam on a daily basis he, he and i are there five days a week at the dr drew and adam show so do check that out five days a week so at this point let me have you dispense with all that let me get to my guest ben spielberg ben is from the tms and brain health in santa monica is that the actual name of the place tms, TMS and brain health, brain, yes. brain health. Uh, ben is a neuroscience and education master degree program from columbia university he focused on neuromodulation, which I think anybody who knows me know I'm obsessed with brain stuff. Uh, and not just neuromodulation, but more particularly the non-pharmacological treatment of brain disorders. Would that be about right? Exactly. And we'll talk about some of that stuff. We're also going to have Dr. Gary Donovitz in here a little bit later from BioT Medical. You, I've spoken to him before. I want to... You know, this is a courtesy of our producer, Susan Pinsky, who herself was misdiagnosed as depression, went on the pellets, which is what Dr. Donovitz represents, and had a complete remission of her depressive symptoms. It was misdiagnosed. It was perimenopause, menopause, mm -hmm. which can have mood and anxiety associated with it. That's not... That's a symptom. That's not the diagnosis. The diagnosis is menopause, perimenopause. Everyone missed that. She went on the pellets. Everything got better. Mm -hmm. So now she's an enthusiast. So we'll bring Hunter Donovitz back. We thought it was important to talk about it because there'd been some press on the pellets recently. Controversy. Is it good? Right. Is it bad? So we'll get to that a little bit later in the show. Also, we're going to talk to a, a patient, right? 
Yes. You know, yes, so we, we are. Have, we got a lot to get to. So first, talk about, let's just do in general, you grew up in Los Angeles. Sorry? You grew up in Los Angeles. I did. And, and how did you get into neuroscience? Um, I got into neuroscience because when I was about 22 years old, I got a job doing neurofeedback as a technician in a drug this, and alcohol treatment This is the center. click, click, clicks on the right? So click, click, click. So, <laughs> so what we would do is we would actually put EEG electrodes on people's heads and we would, we would connect those electrodes to a computer. And we tell the computer that when a person is exercising good brain activity to reward them in some way. So the screen would get larger if they were doing something good with their brain, whereas if they were doing something bad, let's say, and these are right. just brain waves. So we're, we're sort of assigning what's good and what's bad. But if they were doing something bad, then the screen would get smaller or the volume would decrease and over time they would actually learn how to volitionally control their own brain waves which would coincide with their symptoms getting better right now now people get uh, i did a couple of television programs on this topic where mm -hmm. they had an, they had they were using actually fmri up at stanford for a while right and people i couldn't get the producers to get it right they're like oh i see so you're teaching them to be zen and calm it's like no we're not doing anything like that yeah. you're teaching them to get access to parts of their brain that are non-conscious not not at this point under volitional control mm -hmm. and through a, a very complicated technology give them the feedback mechanism whereby they suddenly gain some mastery over that right Would that be about the way to say it exactly yeah. yeah and with with fmri it's so interesting because what they'll do is they'll have people literally just look at a picture of their own brain and say okay you see this part let's change the color in it let's let's literally you know increase the blood flow to this area and, and everyone my experience with the these patients and i don't have a lot don't have a lot was they each one of them has their own sort of mechanism for activating this stuff the study i'm talking about at stanford was looking at a fireplace getting brighter and lower oh, wow. so similar to what you're doing mm -hmm. uh and each patient would have a different they wouldn't say i'm gonna make the fireplace they'd think oh, I have little elves who are digging coal. They'd have very strange ways of accessing mm -hmm. it from a standpoint of the image they would use to get to the, the brain functions. It's not like, it's not a direct process, right? It's, it's not. And that was, that was always the hardest part about when people first came in and they would say, how do, I, how do I make this move? How do I increase the volume? And you say, you know, it's kind of just this, um, this relaxed focus that you have to have and you have to let your body figure it out. You figure it out. Exactly. Yeah. Everyone figures out differently. Mm -hmm. All right. So there you were. And then what happened? Um, so I did that. I did that while I was studying psychology at Loyola Marymount University. And once I graduated, I, I realized that I really wanted more of the hardcore neurobiology. Um, and so then I got accepted to the neuroscience and education program at Columbia, where I really I kept doing the EEG research and I learned more about TMS. So while I was there, I got a job at a TMS center, and I was actually originally hired to do neuroimaging before and after TMS. Neuroimaging, meaning F MRI imaging? Or? Not fMRI. We were using EEG. We were actually using QEEGs. So it's, it's an quantitative EEG. Quantitative EEGs. A quantitative EEG. So you create images out of that. You'd create... Yeah, you create images maps, out of it, and, and it basically gives you these statistics once you record uh, all of these electrode sites, um, and, and then it tells you where each person lies 
in the general population. So, so you may get a number that says this person has more of this type of brainwave in this particular spot than 97% of the population or less than 97% or, or something like that. It's still very primitive interpretive biology. It's, it is. It's not, not a giant leap from phrenology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't mean to be cruel, but, but and, and, and I've seen some great derivative conclusions from from quantitative eeg mm-hmm. but it feels like whoa we, we should be able to have something we should more have direct. we should have more and the issue with it is that you end up if you do it right you end up with so many different variables that it really takes so much energy to figure out what is actually going on here yes. so in, in the clinic that I have now in Santa Monica, we actually don't even use it because what I ended up realizing is I can I can figure out what to do with TMS just by, you know, talking to someone for five minutes. Just their minutes. clinical response. Exactly. Their clinical exactly. symptoms. So t- talk to me about what TMS is and how it works. So TMS stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is a mouthful. Um, and it's basically a device that can actually create a magnetic field, which basically turns on those brain cells so a reminder that when you have a magnetic field currents run through magnetic mm-hmm. field so if you i'm assuming it's around the brain yeah so, focus, so we, we put a device yeah. on top of their head yeah and then it focuses the field and so the current is the current mm-hmm. uh, which is a electrobiological you know uh shifts across cell membranes that transmit that electricity exactly exactly so neurons are they're either on or off and and there's been a lot of research with depression since the mid 90s that have shown that you know if you look at the brain of someone with depression and compare that brain or or compare a brain of someone without depression you'll really go you're going to see the same pattern over and over again you're going to see underactivity in a specific part of the brain called the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex um, and so what TMS does is when it when it creates that magnetic field, we see increased activity in the left dorsolateral. What's the thinking cortex. about what that region does? And it's not doing a depression. So it's complicated. You know, that region alone, we know it's associated with working memory, with executive function, with with a lot of the things that really make us human. All right. So so prefrontal cortex is the part in the front of your brain here. This is the part that develops in adulthood. Sorry for all the adolescents out there. That we're, we're our prefrontal cortex is what you have to use because that part is kind of shut down, particularly in the males. And it's broken into different pieces, and mm-hmm. I, there's even some controversy on the anatomy. There's the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, right. the dorsolateral prefrontal mm-hmm. cortex, the I believe the insula is right in there against all that, right? Insula, orbitofrontal, and yeah. the orbital frontal, which mm-hmm. maybe ties it all together. Maybe, yeah. maybe. Do you believe that? I, I do. Yeah, yeah. I believe that too. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but the dorsal, the the ventral dorsal medial prefrontal cortex on the left is what we're talking about. Dorsolateral, dorsolateral prefrontal, prefrontal yes, cortex on yes. the left. Which is sort of here, <laughs> sort of, mm-hmm. uh, and it is doing what? It's raising the chemistry. There is doing. So I can't imagine what that would be. <laughs> so, so the the lay explanation really is yeah. that there's this underactivity in this area. We know it's associated with depression, and we see that as people get better with something like TMS, we see increased gray matter in that area. We see increased neuroplasticity. The 
the real explanation is that there's really this complicated pathway involved. So you have the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, yeah. which is connected to, which is underactive, and there's a very direct connection to a part of the brain called the subgenual anterior cingulate cortex. Subgenual anterior, yeah. so almost thalamic cortex. Very close, yeah, very so, close. And so there's, in my experience thalamus always gets into the conversation about mood and but no yes. one knew why yeah so maybe we were just thalamus adjacent all this time i it, it's very possible and it's funny because this particular part of the brain we really have no idea what it does right. other than every single study that looks at sadness in fmri machines always has this particular area being overactive. Overactive. Overactive, And, exactly. and underactive in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Exactly. And, exactly. and I'm, I'm guessing that it's also overactive in 20 other things. In 20 other things, <laughs> right? yeah. And what, where else, just for, just to, if you know but, offhand. But, but what's interesting is it's primarily sadness with this area. So, so we know that this area is associated with an increased sense of sadness, but we haven't actually found any other associations with it. We found Just sadness. Just sadness, yeah. You found yeah. what? We, we found that this area, or, or that sadness, has associations with some other areas as well, like increased activity in the amygdala. Right. So, right? so my understanding of the amygdala, again, although it's always going through incarnations, mm -hmm. I, I just think of it as a salience center. Mm -hmm. It's just acknowledging that's important. Right. And, and so if you're sad, a lot of stuff seems important mm -hmm. to your brain. That maybe even isn't important. Right. Right. It's one of the problems with depression. You start obsessing about things and thinking about things mm -hmm. and ruminating about your depression. That seems important. Right. Right. So it makes sense to me. Is that lateralized at all too? Um, I don't know. I that's don't, interesting. I'm not probably. sure if that's lateralized. It probably, it probably is yeah. to an extent. And why do we, and is it always on the left side in even left-handed, true left-handed people? Um, so or does it switch? It switches in about 10% so of left-handed people. Oh, well, that's about how many left-handed people are truly left-handed, right? Yes, yeah, yes. So, so the, your call screener, my producer, is truly left-handed. You can tell if somebody's truly left-handed by how they write. You know how we write like this? Left-handed people write like this. Right-handed people who write with their left hand write like this. Mm. And they write sort of backwards. I did not know that. A little neuroscience. Yeah. <laughs> Clinical <laughs> neuroscience. But you watch her do it. She's like, my wife just does it this way. Like uh -huh. there's always her... But she probably, she's kind of, a lot of left-handed people are also sort of quasi-ambidextrous too, mm -hmm. right? So it doesn't fully re uh, shift in the lateralization. Right. And, and so TMS, so you're creating current in that part of the brain, that dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, mm -hmm. which I'm probably boosts up the sadness center too, right? Or decreases the activity in the sadness center. Right. So, so yeah. one other um, you know, major function of the prefrontal cortex in general is that it's responsible for inhibiting all of these deeper brain structures so that you know, these primal areas are not going overactive at times when, would, when it would be inappropriate to. Right. Right. So that we, we know how to behave in a society. Right, right, right. We were talking about norepinephrine and serotonin mm -hmm. and how these various chemicals, particularly in that region, are are, are part of the story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we know that, you know, 
antidepressants that involve serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and norepinephrine and things like that work very well for some people. And I'm sure that as a physician dealing in mental health, you've seen that, sure. right? Sure. You've probably seen some people improve after a few weeks mm -hmm. with, with, you know, low dose SSRIs mm -hmm. in, in a very dramatic way. But the research shows that 30% of people just do not respond to traditional antidepressants yep. and talk therapy. Right. So it's clear that there's really really something else going on here that doesn't just involve the traditional neurotransmitters and what's and, and and to be fair we really we know a lot about what the antidepressants are doing we really don't know how they work we don't we really just don't mm -hmm. yeah and so that makes sense that we'd have some mystery around the non-responders exactly because we don't know what the responders are doing either mm -hmm. so non-responders 30 percent and and when you say in, in, in clinical practice, most of those people are non-responders. Those are the people that are slogged through multiple medications. Right. They're, they're adding the Abilifies and the all the other stuff to see if there's something they're mood stabilized, right. see if there's something more going on here than mm -hmm. just a depression. I mean, that's mm -hmm. sort of the way psychiatrists are taught. Yeah. Now, in your recommendation, you would try TMS at that point, right? Of course, yeah. yes. And actually, in, in other countries, like Japan, for instance, TMS is actually recommended as a first-line treatment. So before anyone even tries medication, they would go to this temporary treatment that can have real long-term benefits. Now, n this shouldn't be confused with electric shock therapy, which is a general activation of the brain. It's trying to do the same thing, but it does it by causing a seizure. Exactly. So, so electroshock or ECT really um, induces... It, it creates this large electrical field that, that induces a seizure in the brain, and it does this multiple times. It involves anesthesia. There is sometimes temporary or even permanent memory loss. Um, there's confusion. There, there's cognitive fog. There, there's really a lot of pretty serious side effects involved with it, right. whereas TMS, instead of this really large electrical field, it's really just a focused magnetic field without any of those side effects. Right. I'm a fan. Uh, it's expensive, isn't it? It's a little expensive. It's actually covered by insurance. So, really? So depending That's on the insurance company... You have you, to have failed other things, though, first, right? Most insurance companies yeah. require that you failed anywhere between one and four antidepressants in the past. Four. That seems so silly. It does. And then probably you have to go to high doses and stuff. And, exactly. Augmentation trials, things yeah. like that. Let us take a ketamine call, because this is also an interesting area of, of research that you know mm -hmm. something about. And the caller's name is Dylan. Hey, Dylan. Hi. Um, yes, I'm uh, 34 years old. I have treatment-resistant um, depression. Uh, I'm just wondering about uh, ketamine being, like, approved by the FDA. Uh, so it's, like, um, covered by insurance because right now the only places that do it are, like, out-of-pocket uh, cash which is like not doable for me because I'm on well, hold, hold on a little bit. The S-ketamine is available. Right. There's a nasal spray that's available. Now, my question is, is that only after... Hold on a second. Is that only after the infusion therapies that that's efficacious or can you use it as a individual therapy? So S-ketamine or Spravato, that's the brand name, which is, which is essentially half of ketamine, um, was FDA approved in early 2018. Um, and we... People use it instead of the infusions. So I have some people using it after the infusions as sort of a maintenance thing. 
it's, I don't know if that's just some centers are doing that. Probably that as that, well. that may happen, yeah. but that's not the indication yeah, for yeah. it. the The indication is, you know, after after someone has tried a few different medications, they can do the esketamine nasal spray, and they'll come in. Um, I think it's twice a week for about a month, and then they figure out some sort of maintenance schedule. And because it's FDA approved, it's possible to get a single case agreement with insurance to cover it. Have you tried that, Dylan? Uh, no, right now I'm not seeing any doctors. Right, I've given up on <laughs> treatment. I'm trying to get. I want to. Uh, I mean, it's it's complicated. I I I'm, I'm have very limited insurance right now. So yeah. you know, is there? Uh, can, I don't. I, I wouldn't don't know. feel comfortable. I, uh, Dylan, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I wouldn't feel comfortable as a primary care physician prescribing that. Right. I, and yet, I often get in these desperate situations with people that don't have insurance. They've tried mm-hmm. everything, and I feel like I would like to. Is there any intermediate way to get this medication without having to come in and see a psychiatrist and all that kind of stuff? Not really. So, so the only way to get um, esketamine or, or ketamine infusion therapy is to either go to a dedicated clinic that focuses on this. So for instance, CMS and Brain Health, we, we are going to start offering um, esketamine. We have ketamine infusions that we do. Um, but uh, other than that, you know, it's, it's really up to the individual's provider. So I've seen, some, I've seen some striking responses from ketamine. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you have too. Yeah. Right. People yeah. that are just resistant as hell, all of a sudden, three treatments and they're mm-hmm. like markedly better. Mm-hmm. What's the mechanism they suggest, suspect there? Any ideas? So we don't know that much. We we know something. So we know that, for instance, stress is a very big factor in depression. And we know that whatever that means. Right, right. So, and when we say stress, that can mean, you know, it can mean developmental trauma. It can mean literally the current life stressors like work stress, family stress, things like that. Loss. Loss, gr- grief is Anxiety. a very, yeah. So yeah. it's all kinds of things. That's why it, people it, say stress, like, eh, what are we talking about? I, I'm going to bet, I, I don't know much about the mechanism, but uh, ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic. Mm-hmm. So it literally disconnects you from, it, more effectively than an opiate, say from horrible things. <laughs> right. And I'm wondering if that's somehow helping people regulate their emotions. Well, I think that's part of it. And I and what we tend to see is that, you know, very, very low dose ketamine, like so low that you can't even feel it, it doesn't do anything and there's no therapeutic effect there. Right. You have to somehow push into that disassociative state, right. even a very mild disassociative state, and then the therapeutic effects start interesting? kicking That's in. very interesting. Mm-hmm. And I'm worried about it in drug addicts. I've seen some relapses in people that yeah. were doing awfully well. And, mm-hmm. and if I know real honest to God drug addiction, if you give anything that is activating that reward setup, Watch out. <laughs> and, and that's, Watch out. That's the issue because with, with addiction, obviously, if you peel away the substance abuse, there's almost always a mental health issue there. And so if it's, a, if it's really this depression that's causing the addiction, you know, you, you have to ultimately make that decision. How does it, do you guys do anything with panic attacks? Um, not specifically, no. So panic is not something that TMS helps with. I'm surprised. We we have people who will come in and they have because depression. depression and panic go together a lot. Yeah, they do. So so people will come in with depression and anxiety and panic and OCD and PT. You know, when when we have see people with these complicated things, then then they tend to be better candidates than someone who's you know they just have panic attacks. Right. That's that, me. that's really their only symptom. Yeah. Although. 
Gosh, I, when you when people get better from panic attacks, they'll usually look back and go, oh, "I think I was depressed." Right. So that, that's me. That was my my story. I was had panic attacks in college, mm-hmm. and I was aware I wasn't happy. When I look back now, I'm like, "Oh, I was profoundly depressed." <laughs> profoundly. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm trying to get some calls here that are pertinent. To, why don't we bring in your your case, your patient? Okay. Is your patient your patient, Elizabeth? Uh, yeah. So, so she was a patient at our center. Yes. Okay. And uh, let's maybe we should go to break. We'll go to a little break, and we'll bring Elizabeth in, and then we'll bring Dr. Donovitz in later to talk about hormone therapy and its effect on mood. Great. Be right back. The CBD industry is still pretty much the wild west when it comes to claims and criticisms. The science is catching up with the industry. We will have clinical science soon enough, and there seems to be an overwhelmingly positive response these days to CBD's efficacy. We've all heard the reports, and luckily, our good friends at Social CBD are raising the industry testing standards. They like to say they are test-obsessed. Social CBD works closely with their suppliers and multiple third-party labs to ensure you are getting exactly the package that they say you are getting. High-quality CBD with 0.0 THC. And Social CBD wants you to be skeptical. That's why they put a QR and batch code on every package. This allows you to check all the test results for your product, not general testing, the product, the one, the specific batch you bought. And while Social CBD broad-spectrum products are available in a range of formulations, each of which is clearly described so you can make an informed decision without all that hype and promises that sound too good to be true, to learn more, go to drdrew.com slash socialcbd. That is my website, drdrew.com slash S-O-C-I-A-L-C-B-D. For a limited time, you can save 20% at checkout with the code drdrew. Now let's get back to the show. I want to welcome Elizabeth to the program. Thanks Hi. for being here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So how did you get to the point where you started contemplating TMS? Well, I was one of those cases that you were talking about, a multiple failure on several different antidepressants. How long had you been wor- working trying to get some sort of response? Oh, for decades. Decades? Yes. Yeah, and and I'm imagining, because I've seen lots of cases like that, I'm going to imagine you had periods where like it's kind of working and then it would stop, that kind of thing. Yes. Yes. Ugh, how frustrating. Yes. And in my most, before I started TMS, I was on a couple of different, uh, and drugs are always added to the equation. And I was getting better, but I was still depressed. So I had made some progress, but it was very frustrating because I couldn't get right. all the way there because I do know what my undepressed brain feels like. Right. And Ben, I don't know if you're, we can get Ben on camera or not, but I'm going to have him sort of, he's sitting by here. And so this idea of complete remission is something that is, Becoming more, um, I don't know, more anticipated, let's say. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I remember back in the early days of the SSRIs where they're like, well, they're feeling better. You know, but now right. she, people should look forward to a true remission, mm-hmm. resolu- sustained resolution of symptoms, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and with TMS, we're seeing that about 50% of people are getting to that um, sustained remission. 50% of the recalcitrant cases. Yes. And you were lucky enough to be one of those people. That's correct. Did it happen fast or was it after only like weeks of therapy or how did it work? It happened fast and then a little bit over the course of the treatment. I was, because of my experiences with not getting success with antidepressant therapy, the meds, I wasn't expecting very much. But in fact, the first day of treatment, I felt something activate in my brain. I was so excited about it. Um, That's literally what's happening. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, Ben showed me a picture of what the brain looks like when it's not receiving blood flow. Mm -hmm. And it, it, you know, I don't know that that's what I was feeling, but I felt like 
over the course of treatment, I felt like my brain was waking up. So spec scans we're talking about? Uh, yeah. yeah. This so is do you guys scan. do spec scans? We don't. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's the blood flow stuff. Uh, and you have to have maintenance now? I don't. I don't. Ben knows more about this than, than I do, but I think it's a very few amount of patients who actually need to come back for maintenance. Isn't that correct? Yeah, it seems like about 10% of people need to come back for maintenance. And was it out of pocket? Did your insurance pay for it? It was out of pocket. And still worth it, I'm sure, with oh, what you were dealing with. definitely And, and worth probably it. less expensive than the medication you've been going through. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. medication will put you out of house and home. And I think about it this way. You sink some time and money into the TMS, but if it's effective, think about all of the monthly visits to the psychiatrist and the drugs yeah. and the trips to the pharmacy. It's a phenomenal time and money savings. And, and let me ask this. Uh, sometimes, very not uncommonly, People get sort of, well, lots of side effects of the medication, right? And even manic episodes. Did you ever have anything like that? I did. So that's interesting to me. And the reason I ask that, this does not have that potential. Is that true? It actually does have the potential to cause a manic episode, but you just have to be careful, right? You have to track their symptoms. Nobody's going to go into one manic episode after one session. Uh, do you put uh, do you put those people on a mood stabilizer and just forge on? We don't do any of the medication management, but we would that be the desired course? I mean, you 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 wouldn't stop treatment necessarily, would you? We just use mood stabilizer. Put put a ceiling on it and then get something on the depression. I'm not on a mood stabilizer. No, I know, but I'm oh, sure you, they, I'm sure that was part of your course. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But I'm just asking how. what are the ways they kind of help that if something like that happens during TMS, which oh. you didn't have, right? No. You, yeah. Is that true? That's true. No, I yeah. did not have an yeah. episode during TMS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what we would do if someone, if someone seems like they're going into a manic episode yeah. is we would actually modulate some of the parameters of TMS. So we would either change the time, we would decrease the the duration of each session, or we would move the magnet to a different part of the brain and do a more inhibitory relaxing protocol. How did you find your way to TMS? My psychiatrist referred me after many, many months of the medication not getting me to be where I wanted to be mentally, emotionally, psychologically. And what did you think when you first heard about this? I was scared. Yeah, like, what's this? Magnets in my brain? Yes. He said, I, see if your insurance covers TMS. I said, what is that? He said, transcranial <laughs> magnetic stimulation. And I thought, I just had these pictures of ECT for uh, movies in my uh, head. This, everybody, please disavow yourself of all the movies you've seen about psychiatric hospitals. <laughs> it does not apply to today. That is from 50 years ago, talking about things that happened 100 years ago. So... And although not that there were not egregious excesses by the psychiatric, I, sometimes I think you know when people get very critical about psychiatry, that period when they were doing crazy stuff, I'm like they they got a point. But right. that that is long ago, long ago. And did you think about ketamine? Was that something that was presented to you also? He did. My psychiatrist did talk to me about ketamine, but he suggested TMS. TMS was the first thing that Isn't came that out, of his, interesting. out of his why, mouth. Why would he have done that? You think? I think TMS is more of a long-term solution, whereas ketamine, it, it works very well for some people very quickly, but it's just not a long-term solution. You have to figure out some sort of maintenance. So so, so for somebody who has recalcitrant depression, you're, you're needing a longer-term solution than ketamine would probably. It's, it's, eh, but still, those are the guys that get the ketamine, the recalcitrant guys. 
I think I think people are more drawn towards ketamine. I think it, it's a little trendy right now. And I think that there's this idea that if something can work really fast, maybe I'll just try that for I'll try that first. And the schedule of TMS can be an issue for some people. So people have to come in five days a week for about six weeks. And then there's also a six session taper over the following three weeks. How long weeks. does that take per session? So that's that's really what we specialize in is we do a three-minute TMS protocol. Okay, so good. TMS used to take 37 and a half minutes per treatment, and the FDA cleared a three-minute protocol last year, which basically uses a different frequency of the, the magnet pulsing to better enable the brain to learn. Got it. And if somebody wanted to look into this at your center, where do they go? Uh, TMSBrainHealth.com. TMSBrainHealth.com. We now... Are, Caleb, good job. We now have a shot of the two of you, so I feel comfortable now going on to callers here, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. And we'll keep Elizabeth here with us. She may have something to add, which is having a patient perspective I love. Devin, you have a question? Yeah. Hi, Devin. Um, it might be a little bit off topic from Go what ahead. you guys may be talking about. Okay. Um, it's that how many people do you think are walking around today with mental discrepancies and uh, are just not you know, not dealing with it, even not understanding it, yeah, not wanting to get help or feel the pressure of society, just, yeah. you know, kind of against question. them. It's a great question. I, I know you, yeah. Go ahead. You know what? I, I know that you were uh, doing a bunch of uh, work with uh, homeless, yeah. you know, with their, you know, mental health and it just not being taken care of. Right. Um, and how it's not really being brought to topic. It's, I feel like some of a pressing issue where yeah. it can cause, oh, dude, you, you got know, that, it goes man. into other things other than just homelessness. Oh, yes, sir. You got that right. So it brings up a huge, and you've been a, in the in the system a little bit, so maybe you have some perspective on this. So 50% of us will get a diagnosable mental illness during our lifetime. Would that be about right? I think so, yeah. yes. And what percentage do you think have serious SMI, serious mental illness, which is... I don't know if Elizabeth would necessarily qualify for that, but but you know we're really talking about people that are disabled by mental illness when you say serious mental illness. Well, I, I would need you to define that further. Yeah, I know. And and people, uh, let's put in, uh, um, see, it's almost impossible to do properly. I, I'm going to say 10 to, tw somewhere in the 10 to 20% range, depending how you define it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I know that one of the reasons the National Institute of Mental Health was set up is the army did a study on military recruits and they couldn't understand why 30 percent of their recruits couldn't go into the into battle and they found out that 30 percent had neurologic cognitive or psychiatric disturbances mm -hmm. that dis disqualified them from being in the army and that they were taking everybody back then right so that that gives you a sense of the kind of data that's out there what do you think about the system is it is it responsive to patients needs oh i think that this country is horrible on mental health i think, so <laughs> I think we can all agree on that well i i don't i don't know that we can all agree i mean when the I talk, three of us the three of us can agree <laughs> on that and, and I, i'm not sure i'm ready to say it's horrible i'm just saying it's it's ridiculous <laughs> it's ridiculous okay. in so many ways mm -hmm. in some ways it's great and in some ways it's obscenely bad and most of the bad well, I think mental illness is largely misunderstood. I think it, it. I think that those movies that you were talking about that yeah. you're supposed to ignore mental hospitals also ignore psych patients as portrayed in those. I mean, there's some truth to it, but mental illness is much more pervasive than a lot of people are willing to admit to. Oh, yeah. It's a public health crisis in this country. Oh, honey, you got that right. I, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. all about that. And yeah. that's what I mean when I say that yeah. it's, the country is horrible about it because yeah. it's, it's a hard problem to address. 
it, it's not it's 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 hard enough to address if you have all the tools in place to be able to address it and we have almost none of the tools in place so then it becomes almost impossible mm-hmm. uh and that's i think that's kind of a bigger topic let's let's keep let's keep going to the college because i got lots of them here let's talk to uh nicole she has a question about holidays and mood and that kind of thing hey nicole hi dr drew hi, um yeah so my family has experienced um a lot of loss within the last few years my mother died two years ago my biological father died last year and and there's just been uh, my brother and sister-in-law broke up there's just been a lot of trauma and uh I am in a situation right now where my husband and I are possibly contemplating separating and um, just kind of trying to keep up with uh, the appearance that we're still together. Um, it's, it's just causing me damage. I don't know how else to say it, but like, what is the best way to like bring up bad news in a family that's already going through so much? I'm not sure that there is a recipe for that. Uh, you guys are both looking at me, <laughs> lean, leaning back in your chair. Um, uh, one part of me starts to wonder if having something to work on, i.e. your relationship with your husband, might not be an interesting distraction for your family. I don't really know why I'm saying that, but I have this feeling <coughs> that having something to fix did, what did your mother die of? Uh, she got Stevens-Johnson syndrome. And oh, my God. It just, uh, From what? It just, yeah. From a medication? It, the allopurinol. Um, it's a horrible oh story. Oh, my God. Doctor, so let me, let me just tell um, you about that. She's not kidding. Stevens-Johnson is, a, is the, it's the only emergency in dermatology. It, when you certain medication will literally cause your skin to slough off head to toe, wow. and so you become a full body burn patient um, in a few hours. It's terrible. It's yeah, terrible. that's that's exactly what happened. And nobody they couldn't diagnose her for a really long time. Yeah. It actually took um, me going on the internet and and literally looking up symptoms and what new medication she had had. She had gout, and they gave her allopurinol. And terrible. The short story of it was that she got better, and then the doctor told me I didn't know what I was talking about. And she went to a facility, and he gave it to her again. Oh and my she started God. to get worse oh, again. I'm so sorry. Yeah. All right. So, so let's let's go back to yeah. you and your husband. Is there anyone within the family that you could sit with and have a productive conversation about your relationship with your husband? Productive. <laughs> Productive. Um, not really. I mean, I okay. If, honestly, it's, if it's only going to be if it's only going to be unproductive I'm, and and you know, Michigas, don't do it. Don't do it. If there's somebody in there that's willing to listen yeah. and really pay attention and collaborate with you and say, hey, should we tell the rest of them? I don't know what's going on, uh, and sort of build your case slowly rather than dumping you know to everybody at the Christmas dinner. Take it easy. Take take it slow and easy. Right. Don't don't pretend. Right. But I, I wouldn't be in a hurry. They, your your family has been through a lot, and it, it's it's not that it's yeah. it's gruesome that disease. And you know, Stevens Johnson. Thanks, Nicole. 
Sorry I had to go through all that. That's awful. Uh, okay, I'm trying to get more questions for you guys. Hey, let's do this. Why don't we? Why don't um, you guys switch places uh, and headsets? And I'm going to bring in Dr. Gary Donovitz. Can we do that, Caleb? Because it's, a, it's a, another variation on the theme here. Uh, Gary Donovitz is the biotmedical.com is where you can find his materials. He's been here before. He's uh, interested in hormone replacement therapy and particularly bioidentical pellets. We had previously discussed how hormones can be used to treat menopausal symptoms in women. Go ahead and switch your switch spots. And um, and we are you know, a recent study focused on veterans with opioid addiction, PTSD, and depression. So I thought it might be interesting to bring Dr. Donovitz in here to talk about. Uh, his experience with uh, hormone replacement therapies of various type, actually. There you are. Look at you. Hi, Gary. Oh, I don't hear him. He hears us, obviously. One yes, second. You. There you are. Now you're with us. So uh, we've been doing a whole. You're you're over Ben right now. There we go. Why don't you sit between us? There you. There you go. Uh, <laughs> I know he's huge. Um, hold on. There. Yeah. He's got a place at the table now. There we go. Uh, so, Gary, the, talk a little bit about your experience both with women and men as it pertains to hormone replacement therapies and mood. Well, you actually mentioned the PTSD, which uh, was very early in our studies at, at BioT because we really wanted to see what happened with the troops that were coming home from the Middle East. And what we found was both men and women who had hormone imbalances had the worst PTSD. Uh, they were already being treated with narcotics. They were already being treated with antidepressants. Mm -hmm. And basically, they were disabled and couldn't even work. Uh, their home lives were in a terrible state. We looked at their hormones, both testosterone and thyroid, and then testosterone, thyroid, and estrogen in the women. Uh, and it's interesting in women, the women who actually went to war, who had the lowest estradiol levels, had PTSD. So it's not just testosterone, but it's testosterone, thyroid, and in women also estrogen. And we found once we optimized their hormones, we were able to get them off of their narcotics. We were able to get them off of their antidepressants. And in fact, with what we do, not just with PTSD, but the population in general, we're able to get about 50% of people off their antidepressants. So we feel that hormone optimization is a very important part of treating depression and doing it on the long term. Yeah, I, and I've shared the story already today, Dr. Jonovitz, that um, my wife was you know, diagnosed as a mood disturbance and it turned out to be perimenopausal menopause that when was corrected, all the mood symptoms, anxiety symptoms, completely remitted, completely. Right. So what happens is women start losing testosterone at age 25, men in their 30s, uh, unless they're exposed to war and some other stress. But for, in general, uh, women in their mid-20s are losing testosterone and they get put on antidepressants, which is really just a Band-Aid because it's not that they're serotonin deficient necessarily. It's that their hormones are not optimal. Once we optimize their hormones, we can actually avoid that. And long-term use of antidepressants, if you're particularly interested in osteoporosis, and other things as I am is not very good. And they're motivated to come off of these drugs that actually ruin their quality of life versus improve their quality of Sometimes. life, which is what we hope to do. Yes. So, Ben, well, I'm sure what he means, like sexual side effects, libido mm -hmm. problems, that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. But it makes, I'm, I suspect it makes sense to you that other, neuro, other biological processes affect the brain. 
That's all we're really saying. Of course. Right. Of course. Do you have anything in mind? Do you do any kind of workup when you see those regions aren't or hyper and hypoactive that we were talking about earlier? Right. So we do an initial evaluation um, when whenever someone new calls in and wants to come see us to make sure that they're appropriate for TMS. Because if someone, you know, if someone just started feeling depressed recently, there may be some other factors involved, right? Whereas if someone has been depressed since they were a kid or since they hit puberty, which is pretty common, then it's a different story. And it, it probably is this, you know, more treatment resistant, prefrontal cortex etiology. But what we're seeing is, you know, primary all, brain as opposed to something else. Right, right. And, and all roads lead to Rome in some respect so that, you know, there's so many different causes for depression now. And there's really this complicated pathway that involves these brain regions, which connect to the hypothalamus. So then you have, you know, this HPA axis and hormones involved. Yeah, I can't tell you how frequently when I was doing medical evaluations of psychiatric patients, I would find a major medical issue. People would come in with major depression, and what I would find was cancer, heart disease, something mm -hmm. that was new going on that was precipitating the depression. Right. That That's why in, in my world, I, I just always tell people, get a complete, if you're having new psychiatric symptoms, get a complete medical evaluation. Or in older folks, cerebral vascular disease, other right. all kinds of, mm -hmm. I've even seen tumors and things show up as, as depression or other psychiatric symptoms, to be right. fair. Um, and Dr. Donovitz, how about the controversy recently? There was a lot of sort of press about pellets and bioidentical hormones. What, what did you make of all that? Well, there's been a lot of press. Um, it's a couple of things that are out there that are very uh, interesting and I think also are going to affect another, I mean, just like W. I did, which is what we talked about last time, um, there's an attack really on bioidentical hormones, mostly by big pharmaceutical companies. We had an international consensus group of doctors who use testosterone in women published in a peer-reviewed journal, and that came out. But there was another consensus group that also got published in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology a couple months ago, and these people don't even use testosterone and basically said it should only be used in women who have hypoactive sexual dysphoric disorder, which is a little bit weird because with testosterone, we can completely prevent osteoporosis. With testosterone, we can actually reduce breast cancer. With testosterone, we can reduce cardiovascular disease and we can reduce Alzheimer's. I would think that people, particularly women, would be interested in those long-term diseases as well as the short-term benefits of fatigue and sleep and weight loss and improved brain function and improved moods and reduced depression. So to have a group take away their, their the medication or the hormone that is actually beneficial to them is going to be the same thing we saw in 2002, where there was an attack That's exactly on hormones. That's what I was thinking. That's exactly what I was thinking about. It's, it's so familiar, right? We both went through right. that. We're talking about the Women's Health Initiative, which was this gigantic study that was the assumptions in the population they were studying were all flawed. Studies concluded... Exactly a bunch of things that made us all have to take people off hormone replacement therapies. Mm -hmm. We were told we were witch doctors if we didn't comply with this this landmark study. It didn't fit any of our clinical experiences. We were all wondering what something's wrong, something didn't seem right. Well, the study was deeply flawed, and we've had to go completely in a different direction. Uh, Dr. Donovitz, maybe you want to address that. Yeah, so the problem was after that, 
more 80% of women came off their hormones or their, or their practitioners quit prescribing it. Either way, tens of thousands of people died because they didn't get their hormones. And we did lose a whole generation of women. I, I don't really want to do that again because no, the number no. one killer for women no. is cardiovascular disease and yeah. both testosterone and estrogen, particularly estrogen early on, but then testosterone later. Um, it's actually protective to the heart. And you guys are right. talking about depression and mood today. Women who are depressed aren't near as happy, obviously, as they would be if we could get rid of the depression. They don't function as well at home or in the workplace. And now we have a way, and I've just finished a study, 10-year study, 8,000 women with a 70% reduction in breast cancer. We can't afford to lose this generation of women by a group of people whose only interest is big pharma and the money that they support them with. And that's really the bottom line, Dr. Drew. Well, it, it may be, or it may just be fear. And I get it. You know, people that are, I, I, you know, you know, academic medicine is very conservative and to come up with a novel idea, novel approach takes decades to mill through academic medicine. And, you know, I, the reason I'm an enthusiast of what you have to offer is I've seen it over and over again clinically. And it's not for everybody, but I've seen the benefits in people that have been mishandled, misdiagnosed, including my own household. Maybe that biases me a little bit. And I don't, and I have not seen any evidence of long-term adverse effects. So that, it's been around for 80 years. So we do have 80 years of data. It's used in five continents. So I feel like it's not a novel new therapy, but a therapy that's having a resurgence. And it makes sense too, because the receptors in the body have already seen testosterone. They've already seen estradiol. They've already seen natural thyroid hormone. And it makes sense that they would do better with bioidentical hormones than the synthetic product for which they've never seen. And the side effects are going to be greater, just like you saw in WHI. But the side effects of bioidenticals are clearly less. Well, thanks for dropping in on us. Where can people find you? Thinkabioteamedical.com. And you can find out if you're a candidate. We actually have a great questionnaire for both men and women, and we're happy to help anybody. All right. Thank you much, Dr. Donovitz. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. All right. So that's, again, that's, you know, when the one of the things about uh, everything becoming so, um, well, specialized, I guess, uh, that, that you know, we have to be careful we don't become a hammer and a nail. We're a hammer, the whole world's a nail, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And it's hard. It's hard to source, the, suss these things out, you know, when we have common conditions that present with a myriad of solutions trying to figure out exactly what the right solution is for a given patient is not an easy thing anymore. Right, you know, right. We get the right treatment, right diagnosis, right treatment. Mm-hmm. And it's so complicated with mood, especially depression, because as you said earlier, depression can be both a disorder and a symptom. Right. And, and you know, figuring out what is what is an arduous process that can often take many months or even years, right? Yeah. So anything else you want people to know? about? I've got tons of questions here. I think I'm going to have to get to them on the next show. And I apologize, you guys, if I'm keeping you on hold forever. Anything else we should talk about on the topic? Do we cover everything pretty much? I think we covered everything. Oh, markers. What about markers and genetic markers and biomarkers and the future of all that? Do you have any opinion about that? Yeah, I, I think they're great. Yeah. You know, I think I think we've really made a lot of strides with genetics over the past the past ten years or so. Most um, of my, most of the application has been in the way medications are metabolized. Right, right. That's that's where it's been a really clear application. Mm -hmm. But I think we're going to have a lot more applications in the future. Yeah, yeah. So I know there are a couple of those uh, psychiatric genome uh, testing 
testing companies that you can go through, and some of them will actually look for TMS uh, as a biomarker huh. uh, to see if someone would be a responder to TMS or not. The issue is that you know with TMS, there's so many different variables, yeah. right? There's frequency, there's time, there's you know placement on the head, there's number of sessions, all all of which you can manipulate and have drastically different effects. What, what is the biomarker that's associated with response? Do we know? Uh, I don't, I don't know it offhand. That's weird. Yeah. It did. Hmm. I would think of it more of something, a biomarker against response to other things. Mm-hmm. You know, that yeah. TMS becomes yeah, a, a, a biomarker for treatment resistance. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth, have we covered everything to your satisfaction? I had one thing to ask. Please go right ahead. That TMS would then completely knocked out my anxiety. I didn't get to brag about my terrible, terrible anxiety earlier, but it was crippling. I'm joking now, but it was not funny yeah and that's an interesting the the relationship between anxiety and depression is a is always interested me mm-hmm. as somebody who had panic attacks when i was depressed yeah. and then because my panic attacks were so poorly managed i developed generalized anxiety over time <laughs> which became mm-hmm. severe and my mood was still bad but i didn't know it did you know could you tell the difference between the anxiety and the mood i could yeah, yeah they're two terrible flavors <laughs> two distinctly terrible mm-hmm. different flavors yeah and so was you in your case there's sort of two common sort of variants one is the anxiety makes you depressed the other is the depression amplifies or creates the anxiety um, i'm sorry can you repeat that some people get depressed because of their anxiety other people, the anxiety is a symptom of the depression. I think I'm category B. I think that's I'm, what it sounded yeah. like. Yeah. And so, so with Elizabeth, with with Elizabeth, what we did is, you know, we we started with there's one FDA approved placement on the brain. So there's one part of the brain that we stimulated for I think a couple weeks, but we still saw some lingering anxiety and sleep issues. Right. right. There was some insomnia there. Yeah. Um, so what we did is we actually moved the device to a different part of the brain. And we adjusted those, we treated for those specific symptoms. Do you remember and, what that was? Uh, so we treated the right dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. We used the same frequency, but I think it was just 20 seconds, right? 20 mm-hmm. seconds or a minute, something yeah. like that. Isn't um, the, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex also what sense to respond when you look at its the change, let's say, in response to cognitive behavioral therapy? It is, yes. Isn't that weird? That's mm-hmm. very weird. Did you have CBT? Is that part of it? I've read Feeling Good, the new mood therapy. Right, right. It's an old, old standard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird because I, I know that in schizophrenics, they're showing some good. Do you do treat schizophrenia with the TMS? Because I know they're showing good results in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex right. with CM, with cognitive behavioral therapy. We we don't treat schizophrenics right yeah. now. No. Yeah. We, we can treat, you know, the, the negative symptoms of schizoaffective disorder or something like that. but right. The mood part. Right. So where should people go if they're interested again? Where? TMSBrainHealth.com okay. or they can call at 833-TMS-TODAY. TODAY. T- number two, D-A-Y? Number two, D-A-Y. TMS, say it again. Uh, 833-TMS-TODAY. Got it. I appreciate you both being here. We thank Dr. Derek Donovitz for being here as well. We are going to be back in about a half an hour to another Ask Dr. Drew, and uh, my phone screener will talk to each of you that are on hold to figure out how we're going to do this because you all have great questions, and I want to get to them. We're going to take a little bit of break. Uh, thank you all for uh, participating in this uh, broadcast and podcast. We uh, do appreciate it. Dr. Gary Donovitz of BioT Medical, uh, B-I-O-T-E Medical.com, and also our friend Ben Spielberg from TMS and brain health. And thank you, Elizabeth, for being so honest about your, my hope is I, I, I you're giving me, inspire me to bring more patients in here. And, uh, cause the patient stories are what people can relate to. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. 
Okay, everybody, thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, Dr. Drew here, and this is just a reminder that the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care or medical evaluation. This is purely for entertainment and education. We hope you learned something, but see your doctor, get proper medical care. 